crying. Drunk, crying, band-aids on our fingers. <laughs> we cut ourselves <laughs> opening the alcohol. Okay. Everybody there be was careful. something wrong with those bottles of rum. There was something wrong. What a batch. I don't know what was happening, but it was wrong. Uh, we, couldn't, okay. we couldn't get the tops off. Um, so we got the knives out, which is never good because we just did an author interview and we've been drinking. Um, and it was red and it was wine. Woo! And now I'm a dangerous beast. Yes. Um, we had to stop drinking red wine on the podcast because it was having bad results. Um, <laughs> and now we're starting tonight off with red wine. So <laughs> welcome to the party. Look, I'm on summer break now. So who gives a shit what I do anymore? Look, there's a tree in, on my house right now. Who cares about anything? And it's been there for a week and no one can get it off. No one such a can big get it tree. off my house. Oh my gosh, call us if you know a tree guy. Oh god. Crazy. Um, people were literally like, hey Katie, I saw a tree guy on the highway today. Do you want his number? I'm like, so this is someone you don't know. Just a truck you saw. I'm like, no, I don't want their number. Listen, Thank you. I Thank you so Google. much. But I have like Google. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> oh my God. Um Literally, the only inf- information you're giving me is that they can drive. <laughs> uh, but trust <laughs> me, I've highway. had a lot of people drive to me, and they keep telling me they can't help me. Oh, my um, God. So anyways. What a victory. <laughs> welcome to Herstory. <laughs> on the rocks. <laughs> We're really on the rocks tonight. We're with, so rocks. <laughs> with Katie. <laughs> and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And trees. And trees. We talk about good <laughs> women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places. Because women have nuance, nuance. <laughs> but don't worry because we are drinking we're drinking the, the whole entire time. time or you should worry maybe and yeah, we're not historians nope <laughs> we are amateur historians professional drinkers we're gonna tell you two stories we're in the middle of an incredible season about mm-hmm. all women of color which has been just such an incredible journey for us to really like expand our boundaries absolutely and we're gonna keep going oh yeah and we've got Two really cool women. I have no idea who you're doing. Oh, fun. So I'm excited to learn about your person, but I'm first this week. You are first. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. But everybody else is busy. Yes. As well. They're very busy. It's summer. They're packing for their first summer vacation, which Allie's also doing right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you're packing. You're trying to make sure you got the sunscreen and the bug spray and the swim trunks and the flippy floppies, everything. So while you're listening to this podcast, you can't stop and Google because you might miss packing the band-aids. So we're going to describe what these women look like. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Nazik Alabid. And Nazik is a Syrian woman with very short black hair that kind of curls under at the bottom. Her outfit of choice is a military style jacket. She has very serious eyes that are always like looking into mm. the distance and a very standoffish like sense <laughs> about her. I was like, every picture I looked at, I was like, yeah, I'm, I don't want to go talk to her at a party. Yeah. <laughs> um, but She's definitely very comfortable both in and out of her veil. <gasps> okay. Who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Catherine Denham. So Catherine is a light-skinned black woman with very rounded features. She has kind of like doe-like eyes with thin eyebrows, but a very expressive face that she uses a lot while she's dancing. 
And to me, she looks a lot like Misty Copeland. I know. Do you agree? I feel like they look so similar. Um, I think facial features, yeah. But I always picture Catherine Dunham in her older years. Oh, yeah. When she's like in her sneaks. Yep. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of young pictures of Catherine Dunham. Well, she looks a lot like Misty Copeland. Um, And she, like Misty Copeland, has a very strong dancer's frame. And these incredible shoulders that are very on display in her dancing because there's a lot of shoulder movement. Uh, And she can typically be seen in these incredible costumes with full skirts that have rustles ruffles out the wazoo and just like off the shoulder tops and these headdresses and big hoop earrings and lots of jewelry. And she just looks incredible all the time. Like I love her costumes and her just whole look. So that's what she looks like. (laughs) That's super exciting. I love somebody who's like all bells and whistles. Oh my gosh absolutely but um, um what uh what am i drinking because it ah! looks great i already snuck a sip of it and now i need to know what's in it okay so i'm calling this the mamba number one <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of Catherine in, in my, my life a <laughs> little bit of dancing on my life and that was in reference to Catherine dunham not Catherine yes. greenwood obviously but a little bit of both obviously um so this is an ounce and a half of Light rum, an ounce and a half of dark rum, fresh grapefruit juice. I poured that shit right from the grapefruit itself. Hopped grapefruit bitters, honey. You shake it all up and you top it with ginger beer. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. And yo, girl, after last week, Mm. this week, because I've just been like going to restaurants like a debutante. insane i got a bees knees cocktail this week ah! because you made me one last week and, and like, you loved it i was like i need another one i can't wait yours to was go better to restaurant ah! yay <laughs> <laughs> all right so Catherine dunham what do you know about her so she has been all i know about her is that she's a choreographer she was a dancer and then became a choreographer mm-hmm. um and surprisingly, I don't know that because of my dance life. I know that because she was requested uh, by somebody for my girls to do for their Women's History no Month way. pictures. Now, we didn't do her this year um, because we get, we get a lot of requests. <laughs> it's a bit overwhelming. <laughs> but I did look up pictures of her and, like, figure out who she was. because, And she's on our, like, future list Perfect. If my kids will still let me do this once they're in middle school. <laughs> they're in middle school oh, now. They're Allie's me. kids graduated fifth grade and it's overwhelming for everyone and nobody <laughs> likes it one bit. Um, I like it all the best. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So tell me all about Catherine because I'm excited. I love a dancer. Mm-hmm. We've done, we've done a fair bit of dancers on this show. We have. And she is like no dancer we have done before. She's not blind like the Cuban woman? No. <laughs> I would say that's like no She dancer. very much can see. Um, <laughs> Is she like Paula Abdul but... that we haven't covered? <laughs> no. She's very interesting. Okay. All I want to do is dance with a cartoon so... cat like that. I mean... So I got a lot of this from a couple YouTube videos, Free to Dance, Step of the Gods, Living St. Louis, um, and Wikipedia. <laughs> and I'm going to do the Madonna clause. Okay. She has done so much and all at the same time. And I really tried to make this linear and smooth, 
but it just cannot be done. And I really apologize because um, I feel like my storytelling abilities are going downhill very quickly. And I'm really sorry, but I tried to make it all linear, but she's literally doing everything all the fucking time. But also don't apologize because nobody wants to listen to a bulleted list. Okay, that's Tell true. a good story. <laughs> and you know what? If they find out something that we didn't say on our show, they'll message us. It's exactly. Fine. Okay. Catherine. Catherine Dunham was born on May 22nd, 1909 in Chicago, Illinois to Albert and Fanny June Dunham, which also Fanny June. What a great name. Good name. Good name. Her father was a descendant of slaves brought over from Madagascar and her mother had Indian, French, Canadian, English and African ancestry. So it was a very multicultural household. But unfortunately, when Catherine was just four years old, her mother passed away. Um, And then her father is left with Catherine and her older brother, Albert. And he was a traveling salesman at the time. He had a lot of different jobs, but he was a traveling salesman. So he was like, I can't like take care of these kids and do my job. And he was very overwhelmed. So he took the children to the south side of Chicago to live with their aunt Lulu. And it seemed like things would settle down. But unfortunately, when the kids got there, Chicago was in the midst of two very intertwined events, the Great Migration and White Flight. And Aunt Lulu had a business in the neighborhood that had been long established, but then like her customer base kind of moved out during this time and she didn't have time to like really reestablish new customers. So her, at least I think that's what happened. There wasn't much information, Um, but her business had to close down in the midst of all of this. And then Mm -hmm. she has these two kids and she's like, well, I can't care for them now. So then they're shipped off to somebody else. And then there's a custody battle between family members on her mother's side of the family. So they're just being passed back and forth for a while when she's a kid. But the good thing was that at least she's being Pass back and forth <laughs> in Chicago during the Great Migration. And there is a lot of music and dance flooding into the city. And she gets to experience it. And she falls in love with entertainment and dance. So eventually their father married again. So they were able to come back home and live with him. Uh, they moved to a predominantly white neighborhood in Joliet, Illinois. He starts a dry cleaning business so he could be home more often. And things finally start to settle down. <laughs> she started taking dance lessons as soon as she could, but it was not her only activity. Catherine is what you might call an overachiever. When she was 12 years old, she wrote a short story called Come Back to Arizona, and it was published. (laughs) But she's never been to Arizona. How'd she write this book? Who knows? (laughs) And it was published in this thing called The Brownies Book, which was a magazine specifically designed for African-American children, which I've never heard of before. Um, but, But yeah, so she has a story published. In high school, she played baseball and tennis and basketball and ran track. She was the vice president of the French club. She was on the yearbook staff. She did everything. She's all the things. But her big thing was really dance. So she joined the Terpsichorean Club and began to learn modern dance. And from an early age, she started using dance for greater purposes. So when she was 15, she threw a fundraiser called the Blue Moon Cafe. And it was this fundraising cabaret to raise money for Brown's Methodist Church in Joliet. And this is where she gave her first public performance. And later in high school, she like opened up like a dance school and she was giving free dance lessons to like young black kids in her neighborhood who couldn't otherwise afford them. 
she's so doing great. the most. So great. <laughs> and this is all in high school. So in 1928, she graduates high school and starts college at the University of Chicago. And of course, she is dancing and performing. And she started her own student dance company called the Negro Dance Project. But she's not getting a degree in dance. She's getting a degree in anthropology. Whoa! Fun! And her two worlds absolutely collided when she started learning about the cultural significance of dance around the world. And so she really started focusing on the anthropology of dance. And she's like learning about how like enslaved people who had been taken away from their homes and stripped of their culture could still preserve this one thing and pass it on because you can't just like take it away unless you live in the footloose town. Mm. Like <laughs> people can still move and dance and pass it on and tell st- it's just incredible. So she starts getting really into this and she's like, this is my life goal. And in 1935, she was awarded travel fellowships from the Julius Rosenwald and Guggenheim foundations to conduct ethnographic field work in Haiti, Jamaica, Martinique, and Trinidad, studying dance forms of the Caribbean. That's so interesting. So people yeah. are willing for like a full scholarship full. for the anthropology person to go study dance. Yeah. What an interesting path to take to get into choreography. Absolutely. And apparently she was awarded this scholarship after, give or a, you know, fellowship or whatever, um, after giving a very memorable presentation. So she basically went in in a tweed suit and she told them her plan and she was like, but I think it's also important to show you. So she takes off her suit and is like just in a leotard and a dance skirt. And she basically did this choreographed dance. So that was a mix of ballet and African dance. And she was like, this is what I want to do. I want to bring African and Caribbean dance to America. And I want to study it and figure out why they move the way that they do. And they're like, yes, all the money to you, Catherine. You're amazing. So she goes, she's traveling, and she is, like, really in the thick of it because she would literally go into these villages, rent a hut, and just, like, kind of wait for an occasion to dance with the people. And this is really her specialty, was gaining the trust of the local people there. And they like her, they trust her, they allow her into their rituals to learn these sacred dances that like here's where they really originated from. Like she's like, you know, I've seen how they're interpreted back in America and how they've changed, but like I'm really in the midst of it right now. And she just loves it and she becomes a part of the community. For example, in Haiti, she was allowed to really experience Haitian voodoo rituals and study how dance was incorporated into the ritual and how people from Haiti and the U.S. have kept those dances alive. Like, she also becomes, like, an official, like, priestess in the Haitian voodoo. Like, I know it's not, like, church. Like, (laughs) Like, she is all fucking in. So 1936, she comes back to the U.S., officially graduates with her degree in anthropology, becoming one of the first African-American women to do so. And this is not a field that was seeing a lot of black women come in. (laughs) Well, I mean, what are you going to study? Like, anthropology is a really hard field, like, as it is. And a lot of what you're studying is, like, bones and, like, clay pots and shit. Right. And a lot of that is just, like, how much your society has been torn to shreds. Right. And I think it's interesting because... It is such a broad field, too. And 
she was really pioneering this field of like, okay, we got bones and pots over there, but people are still dancing the way they did hundreds of years. Like, let's look at living anthropology. Let's look at these cultures and like what remains. Alicia, like, tell us what's happening. Or is it Alicia? Alicia. Maybe. And Vera. Vero mm-hmm. is an anthropologist. I think I so. Like, yeah. Somebody tell us what's happening. <laughs> But it's tell me what anthropology is. It is incredible. Well, and I think that that's like exactly the problem is it is it it's such a broad field that you can go into so many different avenues with it because it's the study of people, you know. And she carved a niche for herself that was dance anthropology, which is now like a thriving field, and she is like one of the pioneers of it. Um, so she was immediately offered a grant to do more research from Rockefeller Foundation. But Catherine knew that dance was more like she knew that like research in academia wasn't the right path for her. She was like, I want to share this knowledge and I'm not going to do that. Just like, you know, continuing to go and like write about it for only people that read these articles, which is pretty limited. (laughs) She was like, I need to go out and actually teach people these dances so it can continue to live on. Oh, she's preserving history. Exactly. Wow. So she starts her her own all-black dance company. But before they start, she tells them, this is not like anything you've ever experienced. This is a cultural, spiritual experience, and you are going to be learning the steps of the gods. And they do a lot of training before they start performing for people because it's a different way of moving that we'll get into later with the Dunham technique. Um, but it's really difficult dancing. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're a classically trained dancer, if you're trained in, I mean, ballet, tap, jazz, modern, mm-hmm. it's nothing compared to a cultural dance. Absolutely. There is like, there are, there are movements and like, you know, I've seen it with a lot of like, Hindu dancing and mm-hmm. Buddhist dancing and you know and when I think about it when I've gone to in the United States like um Native American presentations like mm-hmm. there are movements that I have never been taught as someone who was a trained dancer for yeah. 20 years yeah so I mean it takes a lot of effort to untrain your body to do what it's muscle memory yeah. oh it is because like you know I feel like in ballet it's like postures everything like stand up straight you know don't move your I don't I don't even take ballet I don't know yeah. but you know it's like it's very rigid and she's like no like I need you to like move your shoulders and like mm. hunch over and like step forward like feet flat on the ground and they're like what is going on like <laughs> it's just very different um, and she tells them the the stories and the folk tales that she learned and she uses those stories to choreograph her dances and when you're watching it it feels like an opera like they're telling these incredible ancient stories with dance and costumes and makeup and drums drums are a huge part of what she brought into this scene and it's incredible i mean in in this one that i watched it's this story about a woman who's lured by an evil spirit and then her lover comes to rescue her and they play the drums of war while they're fighting and like they like the drums and the dancing and the movement they all mean different unique things and they have a purpose that maybe the audience doesn't get, but like the performers know. And so they start performing and they become an instant hit. 
Of course. These, all, the only people who are seeing any cultural dance are like people going to see the Nutcracker. The, right. The <laughs> second <laughs> half of the Nutcracker where they're like, oh, you're the Sugar Bowl Fairy? <laughs> Calm down. And people are just mesmerized by this. And they're really making a mark because people have just never seen anything like this before. And she's also making a space for dancers of color. Because we know that they're really weren't they they weren't accepted into traditional ballet companies. Like if you were a black dancer, you were on the vaudeville circuit or in the clubs. You weren't performing at the Kennedy Center. Well, it didn't look like what people wanted it to look like. Yeah, exactly. You know, like I was listening to this one lady, and she was like, before Catherine Dunham, she was like, if you were a black dancer, you could be like a shimmy girl at a club, right. and she was like, and that's like one of the better jobs you could get. Like you could not be an esteemed dancer at the time and so she's really creating a space for black professional dancers in america so they start touring all over the world but we're still talking about the 1940s here (laughs) so she and her troupe are performing in theaters where they would not be allowed to buy a ticket and this is not lost on Catherine. And in 1944, while at a theater in Louisville, Kentucky, she and the troupe had just finished up their performance and the crowd is going wild. They keep yelling like encore, encore. So Catherine goes back out on the stage and she addresses the all white audience saying, there will be no encore and we will not perform at this theater again until people like us can sit with people like you. And in that same year, the show was banned in Boston because it was seen as obscene. (laughs) And in California, Catherine refused to sign a lucrative studio contract when the producer said that she would have to replace some of her darker skinned company members. Wow. It's Um, really like, and she is not having it. Like she really like stands up for herself, for other people. She's like, this is not okay. Which I think is so brave because in the entertainment industry, like, if you piss off the wrong person, like, sometimes you could lose everything. Oh, you can get blacklisted. Exactly. Um, And sometimes it's because you're just a stuck-up asshole and nobody wants to work with you. But sometimes it's because you stood up for yourself when you deserved better. Exactly. And it sounds like that's what's happening with Catherine. It was. Um, And it wasn't just in America. (laughs) So in 1950, while visiting Brazil, she and her group were refused rooms at a first-class hotel in Sao Paulo, the Hotel Esplanada, uh, which was frequented by many American businessmen. It's a very fancy place in Brazil. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Or two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just, I mean, the colorism is everywhere. Yeah, it absolutely is. And so they were refused entry and she knew that it was due to racial discrimination. So she made sure that the incident was very highly publicized and so this happened and then all of brazil is talking about it and it becomes like a hot button issue she's like you know i am a foreign visitor to this country you're refusing like you're paying me to perform here but i can't stay at your hotel like what the fuck like (laughs) it's really frustrating it is i and i'm frustrated by it and i'm a rich white girl (laughs) It's, that's what's even more frustrating is yeah. that if I'm mad, I can't imagine how bad it feels to actually yeah. be mad. And so this incident, it's all over the Brazilian news. And in response, 
the Afonso Arenos law was passed in 1951 that made racial discrimination in public places a felony in Brazil. She encouraged a new law against racial. It makes it a felony in Brazil. Like, wow. I know. So she's actually affecting change from like just standing her fucking ground. Yeah, that's a big old crime. So even though Catherine and the troop were becoming international stars and changing laws, <laughs> there were still just like so many barriers. Um, it just sucked. Um, but she's also making her mark on Hollywood and she starts appearing in movies such as Star Spangled Rhythm and Mambo. And in 1945, she opened up and directed the Catherine Dunham School of Dance and Theater near Times Square in New York City. Her dance company was provided with rent-free studio space for three years by an admirer and patron, Lee Schubert. It had an Thanks, initial... Lee. You're, you're welcome. I almost said you're welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, <Katie>. For Lee. <laughs> As if I did anything. <laughs> wow, Katie. <laughs> uh, it had an initial enrollment of 350 students, and it's, of course... Where Eartha Kitt got her start. Stop it! Which is the whole reason I wanted to do her was because she was a part of Eartha Kitt's story that we did last season. And I was like, Mm. my gosh, like, we should do her. Like, she sounds really influential. (laughs) I mean, if you train someone like Eartha Kitt at your school and Eartha Kitt was, like, kicking it in holes. Seriously. (laughs) So, but I need to also talk about the other people who got their start at this school. So this is according Stop. to Wikipedia. So let's hope that it's true. Um, it might be. Who it cares? might be. James Dean, Gregory Peck, Shelley Winters, Sidney Poitier, Shirley MacLaine, and Warren Beatty. <laughs> I can't. And apparently Marlon Brando would just stop in and like play the drums and hang out there. Do you know what this sounds like? It sounds like the Mickey Mouse Club of the era before. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, is it Ryan Gosling and Justin Timberlake and Christina Aguilera or Britney Spears? Maybe. You know what I love when the internet just like blesses me with that video of like young Ryan Gosling just dancing his little heart out in his parachute pants with just like... A team of young girls. Like, it's my favorite video on the internet. Can I tell you something about Ryan Gosling that drives me crazy? Yes. Okay, so you know how he <laughs> currently has two children with Ava Mendez? Did not know that. Oh, they're like full partnership. <gasps> they have two kids together. Are they still together? Yeah. Wow. Um, but like before. I did not know that. Before that, he was like with a lot of other people. But like when he started the notebook he like hated rachel mcadams they like hated each other they were like yelling at each other on the set but then they started to really like each other and they (sighs) dated and whatever but now like every interview show he's on people ask about it and he's just like she nobody tops rachel (sighs) there's nobody in the world that tops rachel and i'm like your fucking wife is at home with your (laughs) and it's ava mendez you asshole like i get so upset about it because like she'll say the same thing she's like ryan is an amazing person and i'm like you guys broke up and are with other people but you're talking about each other like this is like i like it i think it's a shiner i think it's a uh i would like to think that it's them like rising above the cattiness that we want of them i would like to think if they were like, yeah, Rachel's a great gal. He says, I've okay. never met someone else like Rachel. It's like, but you're literally the mother of your children is another famous actress. I'm so confused by you, Ryan. Didn't know anything about this. 
Uh, well, now I'm in the thick of it. Let you <laughs> dive in in the car on the way home. I dive will. in to the I Rachel will. McAdams of Ryan Gosling saga. I'm just going to be Googling it the entire way home. <laughs> oh, um, while I'm on my phone. Drunk. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Terrible. We always make sure I'm sober when I leave. We do. We eat pasta. We, we eat so much pasta at the end of each episode. <laughs> so um, Pasta and water. Mm, Go. I'm so sorry. You're great. One of the things that made her school stand out was that she developed a dance pedagogy that was later named the Dunham Technique. So this is a style of movement and exercises based in traditional African dances to support the choreography. And this won international acclaim. It's now taught as a modern dance style in many schools. And the base is isolationism. So she teaches you how to move the different parts of your body separately. So like... Your head and your belly and your shoulders can all be doing different things at the same time. One lady described it as rubbing your belly and patting your head. Like at the same time, like I'd be like, you can't do it. Um, but way more complicated and difficult. Mm. <laughs> Good. So she's obviously doing the most. And like with many people in show business, her personal life suffers life suffered a bit so back in 1931 she had actually married a postal worker but she's literally traveling the world and like getting degrees and just like doing all this crazy stuff and he just like wasn't quite on her level like he was like i don't get why you like this dance so much and like you know again it's nothing against like postal workers like they're great but like he himself just like was not interested in what she was doing what she was researching um so they divorced in 1938 and it's about that time when she starts working with a man named john thomas pratt he was a canadian who had become one of america's most renowned costume and theatrical set designers um so he was a white man who was so down with everything that Catherine was doing and studying so he threw himself into her world, which I love. And so he became her artistic collaborator. They obviously became romantically involved. <laughs> and in the summer of 1941, they went to Mexico where interracial marriages were less controversial than in the U.S. And they had a commitment ceremony on July 20th. And... It just it wasn't just society that disapproved. They faced a lot of backlash from their friends and their family, but their clear devotion to each other kind of melted the hearts of everyone around them. Like they were just such a good couple. <laughs> but it wasn't. Wait, actually... you're allowed to love someone who doesn't mm -hmm. have the same skin color as you? Absolutely. I can't believe it. <laughs> um, but then, like you know, so they're married. They're living their best life. They're this beautiful couple. I'm a set designer. I'm a choreographer. Here's our show. Exactly. Like that. Uh, but, you know, they kind of ran into trouble when it wasn't, it wasn't actually a legal ceremony. They just like went down to Mexico. It kind of reminds me of that plot line and what a girl wants. Like, you know, <laughs> is it a real marriage? We don't know. Um, <laughs> so in 1949, they tied the knot officially on paper in America so they could start the process of adopting a child. Oh, so sweet. In 1952, they adopted their daughter, Marie Christine, this beautiful 14-month-old French baby and they just continued touring the world together with Catherine dancing, John sewing all of her costumes. She refused to wear anyone else's designs, so she was wearing it on stage. Her husband made it. 
Perfect. Which is so incredible and when they weren't on tour they were at their estate in Haiti uh, which was always the place that Catherine felt most at home it was the country she was most drawn to in all of her travels Um, but the lifestyle like was rough on her she had a few breakdowns and apparently in 1957 she just spent an entire year in isolation in Kyoto Japan So I know I like, I was like, can we learn more about that? But I guess she was alone. So we Uh, don't know. Starting Um, now, (laughs) I'm going to start my year of isolation in Tokyo. So she also at this time started to kind of take a step back. Uh, like she took a step back and she started writing more. She wrote a memoir called a touch of innocence memoirs of childhood, which was published in 1959. And she's just casually writing more academic articles on dance and anthropology, again, laying the groundwork for this entire field. <laughs> and in 1960, the dance troupe officially disbanded, um, but she was not done with dance. Uh, she moved more into choreography because um, she had been doing it for her company um, and for movies sometimes. But I mean, now she's doing it for like these really like highbrow entertainment places like she choreographed the show Aida at the Met which is like a huge deal I know um but then in 1964 she and her family just moved to East St. Louis which is going to be a really important part of her life so she moves there she makes her home base there and she is just like this is my town uh, she obviously did some other things like, you know, she then took up a post of artist in residence at a Southern Illinois University um, where she, again, is just like also she's also working so much in academia. And so she goes to Southern Illinois University. She brings together anthropologists, sociologists, educational specialists, scientists, writers, musicians, theater people. And she kind of brings them together and like, let's change liberal arts. Let's write a new curriculum. And I mean, this is the foundation for, I mean, probably the program that I was in, like the liberal arts foundation, like yeah, college institution. Exactly. So she is bringing these people together and like, let's do good work. Mm. It's incredible. And then in 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson nominated her to be technical cultural advisor which is a sort of cultural ambassador. Uh, And he sent her to Senegal in West Africa. And her mission there was to help the Senegalese National Ballet (laughs) and to assist President Leopold Senghor with arrangements for the first Pan-African World Festival of Negro Arts in Dakar. So again, she's doing the most. (laughs) So she made her home in St. Louis, but then she's still traveling all over But she's getting really concerned about the growing tension back home in St. Louis. So she decides to go back and really focus her energy on how dance can help her community. So in 1967, she opens up the Performing Arts Training Center in East St. Louis. And so she's like, this is a place where like anybody can come. You can drum, you can dance, you can be a part of a community. And she's like, all right. I don't want people to just come. I'm going to go out and find people to come here that I think need it. So she's going out and she's finding like gang leaders in the area. And she's like, 
I know that you're mad and you're angry and I want you to come with me. I want you to come to the center so I can teach you how to drum, get your frustration out without violence and just do something positive. Um, so she's doing this. She's going out, finding these kids that need help, uh, which unfortunately brought some trouble for Catherine. So one night the police are looking for this kid who Catherine was trying to mentor. So she's hanging out with him. She's like, I, let me tell you about this dance and these drums. And I really think it could help you. And the police pull up and they're like, you're the kid we've been looking for. We don't know who the fuck you are. They arrest them both. No. At any point. I didn't think this story was going here. I know. Katie, thank you for mm-hmm. this. You're welcome. Um, so at any point, Catherine could have said, like, look, I'm Catherine Dunham. I'm a famous dancer. And they probably would have let her go. But she was like, you know what? I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let them figure it out on their own. <laughs> because she knew that black people were treated very differently and poorly by the police. So she was like, you know, what? I'm going to see where this goes. I want to be treated like a regular person. And like, of course, like, you know, they did find out her identity pretty quickly (laughs) and they released her immediately and apologized and whatever, you know, like obviously not the way they were treating this young kid that she was with. Um, But unfortunately for her, news had already traveled all over the East Coast because while she was locked up, uh, she was supposed to be performing at Carnegie Hall. (laughs) Wow, what a time to what a time to what a time to be up. arrested. <laughs> um, so there's literally this entire crowd of these like wealthy white audience members waiting for Catherine Dunham to show up, and they have to make the announcement that like, oh, we're so sorry, Catherine Dunham can't perform tonight. She's in jail in East St. Louis, and people are shocked. It is this huge scandal. But she, like, doesn't care. Like, she's like, whatever. Like, fuck off. Like, (laughs) I was arrested for nothing. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, she's like, I just don't care, you know. And it actually ended up doing good for her because this is when her, like, real work kind of started. And she was like, you know, the kids started to trust me because I didn't turn my back and run out on them. She was like, you know, I stuck with this kid. Like, I was arrested with him. Like, I could have, you know, said something to the police right there and they would have let me go and nothing would have happened. And I would have performed at Carnegie Hall and left this kid alone. But, like, I didn't. I stuck with him. And it just, people started to trust her and open up and they started to come to her center, which is exactly what she wanted. And, you know, they would come in and she'd be like, okay, you want to fight? Well, let me teach you how your ancestors prepared for a war. And she starts going through these dances and drum beats and formations that not only allowed them to express themselves and get out their anger, but also connected their roots against something a lot of people don't have the luxury of. So, And I just feel like that's it for Catherine. She was like, this all means so much more. So she starts investing even more in St. Louis. And she opened up a museum just to showcase her personal collection of African and Caribbean art and artifacts. And she just keeps putting more and more into this community that people really didn't give a shit about. (laughs) This museum hosts more than 250 pieces from over 50 countries. And... Gerald Braddock's was the museum's 
curator for a long time. I think he still is. And Gerald Braddock's is the young man that she was arrested with all those years ago. I know. I I mean, she changed his life. She changed his life. In 1982, she opened up the Catherine Dunham Children's Workshop behind the museum, which hosted free dance classes and workshops to young children in the area. And she didn't want any money. Like, you know, she was like, I don't want money to be the reason that any kid doesn't have access to the arts. But there were some stipulations. She has said, you have to be a hard worker and you have to have at least a C average in school because she also wanted to teach them how to balance different responsibilities in life. You know, she was like, it is possible to like be a dancer and a good student. It's really fucking hard, but like it is well worth it because that's what she was. She was a good student and a dancer (laughs) and it's hard. Um, And then, so she's doing all that, uh, but she's still also, like, very involved with, like, public activism. And in 1992, she goes on a hunger strike at the age of 83. (laughs) What a turn! What a turn! A hunger strike! (laughs) To protest the discriminatory U.S. foreign policy against the Haitian boat people. (laughs) Listen, I need to go on a hunger strike just for bikini (laughs) season. What is happening? The strike lasted 47 days. Stop it. She's 83. She didn't for 47 days. Nope. Um, and her strike only ended after the exiled Haitian president and Jesse Jackson came to her and they like were like, Catherine, you need to eat something. You're an old woman. You're going to die. Listen, like, just stop risking your life. Jesse Jackson has been in every moment of my life. <laughs> I don't understand why he's always there. But in recognition of her stance, uh, she was awarded um, the Medal of Haiti's Highest Honor. (laughs) But because she was so giving with her time and her money, as she grew older, she did not have enough money to maintain her home in St. Louis. So she ended up moving back to New York where she had a better support system. Um, Actually, her old friend, Harry Belafonte, (laughs) was helping her out a lot. But because she had done so much for the city of St. Louis, they decided they were going to rehab her home so she could come back home and live comfortably. So they raised money. Contractors donated time and materials. Just everyone in the area came to work on this house. So they finish it. They bring her home. But she's in her 90s. And she was home for like three weeks. And they're like, oh, shit. Like, you need medical care like constant medical care and food and like yeah you need like a live-in nurse you need a live-in nurse like and it was something that like Catherine couldn't afford and like the city couldn't afford so she unfortunately goes back to new york where again she had this support system and so then like the city raised even more money and like they are just working so hard and they call her and they go, Catherine, we've done it. We got you the money. We're going to have a nurse for you and a private chef. And like, we're going to do everything for you so you can come home. And she goes, I, I can't. She was like, I really appreciate everything you've done, but St. Louis doesn't need me physically there. She was like, I'm there in the programs and the buildings and the community. She was like, so just keep doing the work that I started and I'm there. She died four days after this phone conversation (laughs) in her sleep on May 21st, 2006 at the age of 96. Wow. 
She leaves behind an incredible legacy in the fields of dance, anthropology, and philanthropy. She said once, I, I used to want the words she tried on my tombstone. Now I want she did it. Oh, that's the greatest. <laughs> and that's the story of Catherine Dunham. Yo, I just need to <laughs> shoot half attempted. <laughs> that's what should be on my tombstone. She like gave half her effort. <laughs> like that was so that was so great. Like what an amazing person. She just did everything. I feel like she is behind so many people's careers. Like she's one of those people who like, you know, I feel like we call like a stepping stone person mm. who like she's she, like, laid things. the foundation. Yeah, like we don't talk about her as much as we should. Right. But the people that like whose lives she affected she's a big fucking she's deal. a big deal she's amazing and yeah and mm. i was just so blown away by her so mm. and that's it Catherine. <laughs> all, right. all right you ready for more i'm drinks? ready for more you drinks 17 drinks in front of you i do down so them. i'm gonna down them all down them all and we'll see what happens in part two <laughs> Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you're a history nerd or even a history hater, this is the podcast for you. Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. Things like how the Bonnie Prince Charles and his Jacobite uprising was a bit of a disaster. Yeah, or how the pharaoh Akhenaten was so disliked by Egyptians that they literally purged his name from nearly all of their records and pretended like he had never existed. And we do all of this while drinking and rating a custom-made cocktail specific to that week's topic. So grab a drink, take a seat, and hang out with us each week as we learn all about history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Okay. Are you ready for part two? Very ready. Uh, this drink looks so cute. And it's little. It is. It's, it's a, a little drink. It's a very small drink because it does have bourbon. Ooh. So it's like a, t it's a tough drink. It's, it's called the Exiled. The Exiled. And it's an ounce and a half of bourbon and a fourth of an ounce of amaretto and a half of an ounce of either lemon or lime juice. And you like rim the glass with cinnamon sugar delicious mix I mean, so, it sounds great i love all those ingredients yeah so. they're great we'll see how they are together it's great i love it the smell of cinnamon on the edge mm. is really good but it can't be a big cocktail yeah it needs to be tiny i mean we did it in a rocks glass it might be better in like a coupe glass because it'll like sit better no i like it in the rocks glass because you know Sometimes when you go and like it, it makes you feel like you're having like a very fancy drink because, you know, obviously like fancy things are smaller for some reason. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> the portion, the portion <laughs> size. Portion is. control. Right. This drink. Um, no, it's delicious. I love it. Oh, great. Um, so what do you know about Nazik Alabid? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I don't know what time period we're talking okay. about. I don't. You said Syria at some point. Mm -hmm. 
But that's it. That's all I know. Well, she's a really interesting woman, and I'm glad that, like, she came up in our, like, whole history of, like, doing this show because she's one of the people that makes me remember why this show's important. Like, it's fun to do, like, the, you know, Grace Kelly's. <laughs> I think you picked the one person we've never done. I know. I know. But, like, you know, I know what you're saying. Like, Audrey Hepburn, Princess Diana, like, like all these, like, very famous, like, Amelia Earhart, these people that, that's like. fun. It's really fun to get into the nitty gritty of their story. And but so much. But it's, like, there are so many women that have impacted history that have, will never be in the cultural like knowledge the zeitgeist the zeitgeist <laughs> we continue to use that phrase and we will and i will never know what it means <laughs> i the only reason i use it because it was used on sex in the city um the zeitgeist is like a uh in my favorite episode <laughs> which I, is called shortcomings i'm pretty sure it's kind of it's like the um there's like a magazine entry almost of like the cool places to go in a city oh no, you're talking about the Zagat guy. Yeah, but that's how I've always equated to the <laughs> cultural zeitgeist. I feel like zeitgeist to me is like the current conversation, like in like the general like know-how. The vernacular. The vernacular. part of the vernacular. Okay. Exactly. Well, that's what... <laughs> that's what we think. What do you think, people who know what it is? <laughs> uh, anthropologists out there. Um, yeah, we will... Nazik will never be necessarily that, but I'm so glad that we've done this show because I got to learn about her. So. <laughs> well, tell me. I'm ready. Okay, so I learned a lot about her story on Rebel Ladies from Around the World. She's in Rejected Princesses. She's on the podcast. I don't know her. So, like, people have covered her, um, and it's been great. So, Nazik Alabid was born in 1898 in Damascus, Syria. And, yes, Damascus, where Paul became blind and became Saul or some shit. I don't know. That's the whole Bible story. Damascus is a big Bible town. <laughs> the road to Damascus, yes. Um, big old Bible town. In my Bible school. <laughs> um we did an entire year, year, a year on the Paul Saul trail. on the Paul Saul trail. <laughs> and let me tell you, uh, it was really interesting. It was taught by an actual hundred year old man. And he had these incredible PowerPoints where it literally went ka-ching every time the slide changed. Listen, because I don't think he knew that it was doing that because he was definitely deaf. But I also think I learned more about that time in history than anything ever anything in my life. Ever. In my life. Uh, I also will say I have a budding stamp collection because of that man. Oh, me too. Because if you got um, a certain grade, then you could get stuff. Because he was a stamp a, or a he was coin. Like a, a stamp, a coin, or currency if you had like the top grade. Because, of course, everyone chose the currency because it was the prettiest. <laughs> um, I, have a, I have a whole treasure chest of coins that now my kids have. I have a lot of stamps because I did not get the best grades. <laughs> I was always the last in the barrel going up there. I'm like, all right, I guess I'm a stamp collector now. Um. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So anyway, we know a lot about Damascus, but only only first century AD Damascus. Yeah. <laughs> Very specific time. <laughs> okay. So anyway. What about Tarsus though? <laughs> <laughs> what do you know about Paul of Tarsus? Um, okay. So her family are wealthy merchant family during the time of the Ottoman empire. And I always get so intimidated when people say the Ottoman empire, because like as compared to the Roman empire, it's like 
one of the biggest of all time. Like, the Roman Empire is obviously the biggest, and the right. Ottoman Empire is, like, number two. Also, I feel like it just gets thrown around a lot. Yes, and the Ottoman Empire was in existence during World War One. So, like, all the time, it'll be like, who was in World War One? And it's like, Germany, the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> and I'm like, like, them again? <laughs> what the fuck year is it? <laughs> yeah, so she's living in Syria, which at that point, the Ottoman Empire is in control of pretty much the whole Middle East. So she's living in the Ottoman Empire, but as a part of the country of Syria. Okay. Exactly. I'm just- <laughs> exactly. We're looking. It's hard at- because it just goes straight over my head because I'm an idiot. Well, and we're I'm looking also- at each other in- and I'm drunk. Well, yes, but okay. It's the I'm way here. the way that I feel about when the movie Three Hundred, when like the Persians come in to attack, I'm like, who's who? Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't understand. Never seen that movie. What? I only know the scene where he kicks the guy into the hole. Never seen it. Never seen we the movie. We are Sparta. Gerard Butler. I think is the guy in it. Correct? Not correct? I Let think us it's know. Russell Crowe. <laughs> no, he was in Gladiator. I've- Russell Crowe was Gladiator. I'm pretty sure Gerard Butler was 300. Shit, I don't know. All I know is that, okay, <laughs> this is terrible. All I know is this has nothing to do with your story. <laughs> I am going to say something, though. So, okay. Spartan women, and this is like a historic thing, not like a thing I'm making up, but it might be something someone else made up. Um, the Spartan women would say when their husbands and sons left for war with your shield or on it, meaning like come back with your shield or come back dead. And every time producer <laughs> leaves for golf... <laughs> With your cart or on it. Every time, like, babe, I love you with your shield or on it. And I'm like, if you don't win the golf tournament, I don't want you coming home. It's like every time. And it's like a really magical (laughs) moment between us. I have known. (laughs) What the fuck is wrong with us? You as a couple... My whole life, frankly. Yeah, you were seven when we and started I'm dating. Constantly discovering more things about your relationship <laughs> that are so fucked up and weird. <laughs> I love it. You guys have so many bits. I don't get it. All we do is do. Bits. All you do is bits. It's your whole relationship. It's insane. I love it so much. Me too. Um, <laughs> either okay. die on the golf course or don't come back. <laughs> okay. So here's the deal. She's living in the... <laughs> Nazik is living Live in the... Live or die by the clubs. <laughs> Sorry. Either the alligator's going to eat you in that okay. lake. Also, there's <laughs> a golf ball embedded in my front yard that we've never seen before. Where? Your front yard? My or front or yard. Mine. On Goodwood Road. Did the snake bring it? I don't know. I thought it was a snake egg, actually. And I was really upset. Okay. I'm sorry. But it was a golf ball. Who knows how it got there? All right. A big mystery. (laughs) Back to the story. It was producer with his (laughs) shielder on it. Okay. (laughs) I'm an empire's there. (laughs) She's living in like Syria, Iraq, Egypt. Like they're all part of the empire. Her father is Mustafa Al-Abid and he's like a Syrian aristocrat. So she's like rich girl, rich girl, rich girl. High up, he's part of like the boys in control (laughs) of the country, (laughs) and he is like in the court of the sultan. And the sultan's like, "Hey, bro, take your family, go on an envoy to Iraq. 
Okay. I don't know why, but I couldn't find why. They're all just going to Iraq. Um, while in Iraq, though, Nazik is going to school because, of course, like, she has to go to school. And um, she's Syrian, and there's Turkish teachers, and the Turks are, like, the ruling class of the Ottoman Empire. And in the schools, she's just getting her ass discriminated against. <sighs> and she's realizing that all the other Arab kids are also getting discriminated against. And she's like, I'm 10 years old, but I'm going to lead a massive protest to get all my teachers <gasps> fired. <laughs> <laughs> So she's, she's like, start- this is bad pedagogy, and I fucking know it. I know it, and, I'm gonna and I say hate it. About I it. hate that the Turk kids are being treated better than the Arab kids. So she leads a protest at 10. Obviously, it doesn't work because 10-year-olds <laughs> don't know what they're doing. She gets kicked out of the school, and her entire family gets kicked out of Iraq. Oh, my and they're God. exiled from the country. Oh, my God. This is exile number one. Ex- there's Her, multiple? There's more than multiple. Okay. Nazik okay. is exiled for the first time from Iraq for trying to get all her teachers fired. She gets back to Syria and is like, okay, well, I'm in Syria now. And, like, there's not as many Turks here, even though they're still in control. So she starts writing articles for the Syrian newspaper. She's, like, 12-ish years old. And she starts criticizing, like, the committees for union. Like, she, okay. So the newspaper is about, like, union and progress within the Ottoman Empire. And she starts criticizing the fact that they're not doing that. She's complaining at 12 years old that they're militarizing the area, that they're saying Arabs should not be included in government, and, like, only Turks are in power. So it's 1914 in Syria, and she decides she wants to get women the right to vote. She's really making moves. Oh, my <laughs> God. And this is, like, again, like you said, like, what, like late 1800s, early 1900s. Like, this is 1914, like, the start of World War One. So then she becomes part of this group that is, like, underground fighting against the Ottoman Empire. Of course, the government is not going to like this. So the governor of Damascus whose name is um, Jamal Pasha, specifically starts to target her and target her group. And he is just all against what she's doing. So he outlaws her. He outlaws her activity. And then, of course, he exiles her entire family. Oh, my God. So she ends up in Egypt, and her whole family is in Egypt. And she's like, well, I can't go to school because nobody wants me to learn anything because I'm a girl. And I keep getting exiled from everywhere. And her family gets her these private tutors because they are aristocrats. They do have money. She is a woman of privilege. Mm-hmm. Which I think is leading to all of her, like, big decision-making. Where yeah. she's just like, I feel confident saying how I feel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she's in Egypt. She's got these private tutors. She's learning literature and becomes fluent in Turkish, Arab, French, and German. And while she's there, she bounces around to Istanbul and attends a women's college and gets a B.A. in agriculture. What? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if it was like civic engagement that she was really interested in. Like maybe once we're all free, I can like plant a garden and we can all have food or something like that. 
Right. Or I'm thinking like, this is something I have no experience in. And like the people who are involved in agriculture are people too. And they're often looked over. So let me learn about it so I can fucking talk to them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think that maybe she saw it as like a, like a way in to like, I may not know what you're experiencing, but at least we'll be able to have a conversation because I'll know what you're talking about when you say the crops weren't viable this year. Right, right, right. But at the end of World War One, 1918, the Ottoman Empire falls and it's like over. Nazik returns to Syria and starts giving speeches and calling for women's rights, the rights of women to vote. And this is like the same exact time that they're having the Seneca Falls Convention like in the United States. But in Syria, there's this high-ranking government official, and he says something like, uh, quote, women were born with half a mind. How can we give them the right to government decision-making or some shit like that? But the same thing is, like, happening in the United States. So I really want to point out they were tracking on women's rights at the exact same moment. Yeah. Um, and we need to make sure that we note that now and in the future, because it's not just like America did it. So everyone else did. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, everybody around the world had this same discussion at the same time. Yeah. Anyway, 1919, she's only 21 years old and, um, she founded Noir Alfala, Alfaya. And it is the light of Damascus is the translation. And it's the first large women's organization ever in Syria. She's teaching English and sewing courses to young girls and orphans. She's picked to be the head of the delegation of the Syrian commission who has to meet with the American commission that's set up by Woodrow Wilson. Because what's happening is after World War One. The Ottoman Empire falls and France is like, okay, well, we'll just take all their shit then. We'll just take the whole Middle East. And Woodrow Wilson's like, okay, but I just created the League of Nations and I'm not sure if that's cool. (laughs) League of Nations is like pre-United Nations. And he's like, I really don't know if France should have the Ottoman Empire. And everybody's like, all right, let's talk about it. So all of this is about whether or not white people should own the Arab world. Uh, yeah. I just feel like they're having this conversation about like, well, like a little bit for you, a little bit for me. It's so and then there's this entire group of people that is like, you're talking about my life, mm. my land, my culture that you don't give a shit about what is happening. Exactly. But she gets put on the commission. Ooh. Okay. She's on the commission. She's supposed to be there to talk about it. And, you know, there's photographers at this meeting. It's big in the news. It's like Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, League of Nations, no more world wars. I mean, she's not actually world wars, great wars, no more great wars. I'm picturing the picture, like the famous picture of like Woodrow Wilson. No, I'm sorry. 
never mind. I was thinking of FDR and Stalin. Now, and <laughs> to be fair, because this didn't work, that's why they created the United Nations okay. after Cold War II. So Woodrow Wilson created the League of Nations, and the goal of it was to not have another world war. But then we did, so that's why they created the United Nations after World War II. But anyway, she's there. Everybody's watching. They're like, what's going to happen? Is France going to take over? There are news crews that are around and like watching to take pictures. She comes up on TV as a Syrian woman unveils (gasps) herself. No, on TV, like in front of all the newscasters, everybody's taking pictures. She is saying to the world, Syria is free, Syria is liberal, and we're going to make our own decisions. And I'm a woman, and I'm in power, and it's fine. Now, this is also not to say that women who choose to remain veiled don't have power. This is something that happened in 1918 that she wanted to prove to the white male people trying to take over her country that she was just as powerful as them oh yeah i i think the topic of the veil is so important because people wanted to be like no they shouldn't wear veils i'm like some of them actively choose to like there was a huge time in turkey in the 60s where where women weren't allowed to and And they they were were wearing them in like secret you know right (laughs) it's like just fighting for their right to wear it and, and we did it with um nazi pikitsi where it's yeah. like she wanted to play chess and she didn't want to wear a veil mm-hmm. but they wanted to make her wear a veil mm-hmm. and it was seen as empowerment for her not to but also if somebody tells you you can't that is also oppression right you should be able to choose to wear the veil and <laughs> she comes on like world news and unveils herself in front of America and France and Syria and like the previous Ottoman empire. And everybody's like, Oh shit. And like, what an incredible way to like start that conversation from such an early age when Mm -hmm. like, we're not even ready to talk about the nuances of like (laughs) any of this yet. And she is starting a conversation about veils that like, Frankly, I, I don't know if anyone is ready to have yet. Right. Because France is coming and they're saying, well, we should own the whole Ottoman Empire. We should mm-hmm. own Syria. And she's saying, no, Syria is allowed to make their own decisions. We don't need white people to make our decisions <laughs> for us. Yeah. I am an Arab woman and this is who I am. And I think that was a very powerful decision. So in 1920, she starts a magazine and becomes the editor-in-chief, although she mostly writes under a male pseudonym. She also founds a woman's club and um, had, like, all these women who had lost their husbands, perhaps in war. They had places to go. So she's trying to bring in these widows. And if a widow couldn't get a job or if they couldn't learn another language or they couldn't legally work because they were technically a married woman, she was trying to find them employment. Um, but the French are still trying to take over and the Syrians are really against this. All they want is a Syrian person yeah. to lead their country, which is not a big ask. No, it's not, not a big not ask at, at all. all. 
But the French aren't just like asking, they're invading. And usually we're like all for the French. They like are typically in terms of African-American people leaving the United States to get equal rights. France is like oh, where it's at. Number one with a number. I mean, absolutely. Freaking Sally Hemings had freedom in France <laughs> yeah. in the 1700s. <laughs> we, but that doesn't, we're a budding country and she is more free over there than she is here. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the Arabic world got the same respect. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's important. Mm-hmm. So Nazik is being like, oh, my God, stop trying to take over her shit. So she volunteers for the Syrian army. The army. And they take her in the army. She dresses in full armor. Boy clothes. I don't even know what they wear in the early 1900s. Me either. They put her on a horse. A horse. On a horse. She's riding in. She is front line, toe to toe, looks like a dude. She's there. Everybody's about to watch. And this is not like a like a um, posed military event. They're about to all get slaughtered. All the Syrian people die in this army, oh. except for her. But they run up. She's on a horse. She unveils herself. Oh. National media, they realize she's a woman. She's a woman on a horse in this battle. Everybody dies except for her. And she gets dubbed the Joan of Arc of the Arabs. I was just going to say she sounds like Joan of Arc. Also, she's there. She's there on a horse as a woman with the military fighting the French. This is exactly Joan of Arc. It's, I'm also just not understanding. I mean, I'm an idiot about war. I don't fucking get it. We all are. It's such an interesting time period, too, because there's still face-to-face combat. Yes. And you World literally ended with like mustard sounds, gas. This sounds like something that should be in, you're right, Joan of Arc's era. Which is like the 1400s. Of Mulan, this face-to-face, like... There's an epic battle and then someone reveals themselves to be a woman and you're shocked because this isn't normal. And like, it's the very end of Lord of the Rings. I am no man. Didn't see it. Um, What? (laughs) Okay. Let pause. 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 Um, I didn't. I've only seen the first Lord of the Rings. I'm going to be honest. Okay. So there's a, but I watched it literally 10,000 times, but Summary. Brief summary. <laughs> there is a king who needs to be killed in order for them to win. And the theory is no man can kill him. And Ara wins. <gasps> she comes no. up mid-battlefield. No man can kill me. Rips off her helmet. <gasps> I am no man. Bass! Um, right ah! The whole thing falls apart. A okay. Woman, one Lord of the Rings. Didn't know that. Uh, Thanks for spoiling the quadrilogy for me it, it it's the greatest moment my girls are constantly i am no man i didn't <laughs> know that yeah well great. now i gotta finish the series i mean it's um, pretty fucking good okay anyway this is the point this is what she's doing she's ripping off her helmet i'm not a dude y'all are fighting i'm gonna fight with them okay it's pretty I'm absurd. so overwhelmed by her <laughs> it's pretty absurd okay so Syrians lose the battle. <laughs> they totally lose, like, by a lot. Uh, so she's exiled again from, <laughs> from Syria. She just keeps getting kicked out. She's, like, kicked out a lot. Um, 
1922, she gets she ends up being allowed to come back to Syria, and she's like, "Listen, I can come back because I'm giving up on politics. I'm a humanitarian." She's changed her whole vibe, uh, and she creates something called the Red Crescent, which is uh, reminiscent of the Red Cross, and they later merged together. But it's a huge organization that really did help those wounded in war. In 1924, she teamed up um, with another woman from Syria and a woman from Lebanon, and they founded an organization called the Women's Union, and she's under the surface now part of this crazy resistance movement against the French. And she's, like, smuggling food and weapons <laughs> to, like, Syrian resistance fighters. And she also starts educating women and widows because she's like, nobody is – all their husbands died in World War One and in all these battles, and they don't have any knowledge, and it's not – fair so she obviously gets exiled again from that uh and the french uh take out a warrant for her arrest so she leaves syria in 1937 she decides to move to lebanon and in lebanon she finds an amazing man who had been lobbying for women's rights, women's right to vote in the Arab world for like so many years and they get married and they're so happy together they fight for sick leave for women because they have children they fight for maternity leave for women but of course their marriage butts up against the holocaust (gasps) and they are living in lebanon so their country becomes swarmed with Jewish refugees. And Europe then claims Israel, and Jewish people claim Israel, and she and her husband get tied up in the Lebanese-Israeli-Middle Eastern war that is still happening today, like over the West Bank, and who owns what, and why do they own it, and you know whose god-given right is it to have this land but she instead of becoming involved with this founds an organization for refugees and starts a hospital for children of the war she spent her life working to better the lives of syrian women and arab women in general She was a revolutionary for national independence in Syria and for women's rights to work and vote in the Arab world. She did pass away at the age of 72 in 1959. And that is the story of Nazik Al-Abid. I feel like she is of so many different eras. Like, I'm just so overwhelmed with her story because... Anybody who drags from, like, the 1800s to the World Wars saw so much. And, I mean, it's why they're called the greatest generation. I get it. I'm not, like, opposed to that. Yeah. It's very cool to be like, I was born in the 1800s. Then my family fought in World War One. Then my family fought in World War Two. Find me. I'm obsessed with that. At me on Instagram. Um, we need to talk about these two <laughs> ladies together. In a little segment. We like to call them just the two of us. Okay. Wowza. So I feel like they were 
writing from an early age. That's very clear. So much. It's a magazine. I just feel like I'm a person who doesn't know what I'm doing even now at the age of 27. They're 14-year-old girls. They're 14-year-old girls just knowing, like, they're like, I have a voice. I'm like, I was just trying to get a cell phone at 14. Like I'm barely allowed to talk on this podcast. I don't know what was happening. (laughs) They're incredible with it. I just feel like they had such bigger visions for themselves at such a younger age and, like, they're writing and they felt so confident. Your uncle's absolutely here and we have to pretend we're not drunk. Okay. My uncle? Uncle Mike. <gasps> no way. Yes, he did. I just felt like they were both so confident in saying how they felt, which is something that I still don't have today. Mm. And I'm really embarrassed about it. But I feel like you have Nazik who is standing up for herself and her people and she's like no this isn't right and i can see that it's not right and i'm saying it and then you have Catherine dunham who's literally turning down thousands of dollars you know probably millions of dollars in today's money of like just being like no like you're saying you want me to change the dancers in my troupe because they're too black? Well, like, I don't give a fuck. Like, they are who they are, and you should treat them as people regardless. And that's how they both were. They were like, I'm going to write for magazines. I'm yep. going to open schools. I'm going to teach people who everybody else says shouldn't be taught, whether it's orphans or people of a different skin color or yep. widows or women. Everybody was like, hey, listen, both Nazik and Catherine, hey, listen, we're going to make sure that the underserved communities are served. Yeah. And I feel like they were both kind of exiled in some capacity. You know, I feel like Nazik was obviously exiled multiple times. They're like, like six or seven times. She gets you kicked. get out of here. But how can you get kicked out of a country seven times? I don't know. But Catherine, I feel like, was exiling herself. You know, and she was kind of getting ahead of the curve. And she was like, I understand that you're not ready to hear this in Kentucky right now, but I'm going to say it and uh, I'm not going to perform here. Like she was saying, I won't perform here again because of your policies. And she was kind of taking herself out of the equation. And again, like turning down money and opportunity because she knew that it wasn't right. And she also knew that her and her dance troupe were talented enough that like she knew money spoke and she's like money speaks you're gonna want us anyways because it's gonna sell a lot of fucking tickets right so if this will get you to change your policies then we can talk but like i'm not gonna participate in this system you know and like and it's incredible to me that her dance troupe went on for as long as it did while speaking out actively because you would think like we were talking about earlier they would be blacklisted Mm. and they wouldn't be able to perform anywhere it Um, just it speaks to the idea of like um racism in the united states and in the western world versus like colorism and ethnicity in the middle east and the eastern world like Mm -hmm. it's such it's the same concept but with such a different vibe that i think we don't often compare it no you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I feel like the whole point of these two stories, though, is that they're paying attention to, like, ignored groups. And mm. ignored groups can come in forms of race and color and gender and ethnicity and religion and all of these things. 
And at the end of the day, it's like someone just wants to hear like, I'm paying attention to you. (laughs) I get what you're saying and I'm trying to better your situation. And I feel like both of these women did that because they were people with bigger visions. I feel like they were not concerned about their own personal fame and fortune. You know, and like, they didn't seem to get down about it. No. It was like, my vision is big. Kick me out. Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. Tell me that I'm studying something that's pointless. Yeah. I'm here. Fine. But like, they were just so not focused on themselves and focused on the bigger picture that I'm just so impressed by that because Catherine Dunham definitely could have been an Eartha Kitt. You know what I'm saying? Could have been. But she didn't. She was like, Eartha Kitt's Eartha Kitt. And like, I'm going to train her. I'm going to give her all the tools so and she I'm can Catherine be. Dunham. So she can be in holes later. Um, <laughs> but she's like, I'm not going to have the notoriety in later years, but my legacy will live on. People will still talk about me and people will know what I've done through my protégés. And perfect. I feel like Nazik kind of had the same thing going on. And it's like, I could be a Benazir Bhutto and be a part of the system, or I could be aside from the system and system adjacent system adjacent. Yeah. And like telling you what's wrong with the system. And I think we need both. I think we need the Eartha kits and the Benazir Bhutto's and the Nazik's and the Catherine Dunham's. I just feel like we need all of them to play their parts so that we can move forward as a society and not let the ignored groups continue to be ignored. I absolutely agree. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. All right. Closing time. Are you ready to toast? (laughs) I am. Okay. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I just want to toast for Nazik, the, the people who believe in the impossible, but then work to make it happen. Yes. I just, it's so easy to believe in something so big, a concept so big, but then people who stop and are like, but here's the baby steps to ensure that that big exists. And I think that's what Nazik did. And I think it's really cool. So cheers to her for doing that. So I'm going to toast Women who bridge the gap between academia and arts. I just, I think people think that you can only be one thing. And people like Catherine Dunham and our incredible sister-in-law, Olivia, prove them wrong. I feel like both of them are people who are like, yeah, I like am this incredible dancer and I can do this thing that, I mean, I definitely can't do. I'm not a dancer. (laughs) I'm a wedding dancer and that's it. Um, but <laughs> you know, funny, it's like dancing and getting your masters. And I feel like it's very yeah. similar with Marjorie. Like she's a writer, yeah. but also like an academic. Right. And it's, it's very, br- it's inspiring. It's inspiring because it's bridging the gap. It's these two worlds that are seemingly opposed and people like to underestimate both of them. And they're just bridging the gap and saying like, no, I'm an academic and I'm an artist and I can do both at the same time. And uh, I'm incredible. <laughs> so cheers to them. Cheers to those types of ladies. <laughs> I'm not one of them. No, me neither. Mm. All right. Now for our final segment, Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay. So I want to be real with you. I really only <laughs> like reading 
trilogies mm-hmm. or beyond series. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like once you meet a character, the effort's put in. Yeah. I, I want to, like, really spend it all out on that character. But I decided – so I online I found this set of online posts that were, like, books that should be made into movies. Ooh. Ooh, that's a very and I was good like, post. okay, so I'm gonna read all these books. So now okay. I, I came up to one that wasn't a series and it was just called We Are Liars, and it is very good. I finished it this week and it was a short read on Audible. If you're an audiobook listener, it's a short read if you want to purchase the book, but it was a realistic fiction of a woman or young girl like teenage girl who had suffered some trauma and she's trying to figure out what happened to her but her family has been told by doctors that they can't tell her because every time they've told her she's broken down and forgotten again (gasps) so she has to come about learning Uh, what happened to her on her own it's like 50 first dates it's exactly like that depressing ass movie uh so sad but this is – I thought it was a really good book. Like, I don't like a one-shot-in-the-dark book. So I was, like, really taking a gamble on reading it. Because once I invest, it's like I want I want to be there for a long period of time. And yeah. I wasn't. It was one book. You're a box of wine reader. I am. I – so – You don't want a bottle. You want a box. Exactly. You want to invest and in the box. Every single book I either listen – depending on the reader on Audible, I listen to it either time and a half or double time. So <laughs> a book that takes six hours takes three for me. I know that's absurd. That's so you. I know. It's like unbelievable. I accidentally was listening to – this American life on double speed one day. And I was like, is Ira glass on speed? <laughs> is she taking, what the she hell is cocaine? going on? I adore it because it's like, if you're going to read it anyway, you may as well finish it faster. <laughs> oh, you're insane. No, I'm insane. <laughs> but this book was worth the single time. One book. Okay. I Sounds did, great. I listened to it till at 1.2, but perfect i gave it a moment what do you need what are you telling me about i mean i'm going to promote <laughs> this show king of the hill <laughs> i <laughs> okay so it's casey and i's fall asleep show right now it's really good and it made me sob last night which is really embarrassing but <laughs> i there was a line in the episode last night it's when peggy goes back to montana and they live in texas mm-hmm. And I know I conflate the cultures a lot, but it was really interesting seeing like how Texas is perceived in Montana and like they're on this ranch and Peggy just wants to please her mom and she can't. And they focus on like the good that Montana does for Bobby. And it's so great. And like Bobby's on the hill with a horse and I'm like sobbing. But I think it's interesting because we often really pigeonhole people from those cultures like people who are probably more conservative or whatever and i hank has this line in this episode that i watched where he's like i'm not a redneck and i'm not a ranch hand i'm complicated and they laugh at him that's so cute though i think it is so indicative of like i think with the internet now we do like to just say like you are one thing and he in this episode is like no i'm complicated and like you're misunderstanding me because like these guys from montana are literally like 
you're from Texas. Like, okay, Hollywood. And like, there's, <laughs> they're calling him Hollywood. You're not as ranch as I am. And it's like, I, I love King of the Hill because it is a show that really gets into this and it makes you understand these people who like, you know, I grew up in Baltimore city. So like, I don't know what it's like to grow up in Texas or Montana, Forget but, like, it. but it makes me definitely have like a little bit more like, I don't know, compassion, compassion and love. And like, I don't know. I just love it. And it's a great show to fall asleep to. It's a very cute show. I agree. And I think it adds a lot of nuance to people who I think, uh, are they robbed don't get of that nuance. Service. Yeah, they don't get that service. Especially in media. Like oh, in absolutely. popular media, they don't get that service. Yeah. And I fucking love it. And I love King of the Hill. I think it's a great show. Yeah. And I just I don't know. I was thinking about it a lot this week and I love it. So okay. I'm gonna promote it. Um it's on Hulu. <laughs> All Watch seasons. It. <laughs> uh okay. We're everywhere. You can find us everywhere. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can find us on Patreon. You'll mm-hmm. get other stuff. You'll get pictures of us. You'll get um, an extra spot that we're about to do. Yes. So you get special things mailed to you. Um, it's a really fun time being a part of Patreon because if you listen to this show, you know we get personal a lot and we get extra personal with Patreon. So if you want more of this, <laughs> yeah. sign up and help support the show because we really couldn't do it without you guys. Um, That's correct. Because, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot, but we love it. Mm. <laughs> so follow us everywhere. Go check out Patreon if you want. But really, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women are typically loyalists. I don't even know what that means. But they rarely make history. <laughs> I'm leaving you behind. Loyalists. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, like a lo- in a war, they always side with the governing party. Oh, okay. Loyalists. Yes, that makes sense. Not the Tories. Were the Tories the loyalists? <laughs>